Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by me, Sommelier Joe Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we are switching roles. This was a very popular episode we did months past, where I talk about alcohol and Jill talks about classical music. So that's what we're doing today. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scores and pours. We've made it really easy for you to decide what tier works best for you. There's a five, 10 and $20 tier. Um, you get patron only content plus some merchandise, but there's also a merchandise link free to go there and buy extra merch because who wouldn't want to do that? Thank you so much to our existing patrons. We couldn't do this without you. Hey, Jill Mott. Good day, Emily Reese. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm excited to talk to you about some music that I love. And I'm excited to talk to you about a liqueur I didn't even know existed until a few weeks ago. It's actually one of my my favorites, or one that everyone that has a bar should have one of the colors in their repertoire. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. But I love that when I came over to the studio today, it was super sweet that Emily and her roommate, we've all potted together, obviously, during these COVID times, and they made for me a cocktail that included this liqueur Mm -hmm. that I I wasn't privy to what was going on. I heard lots of action in the studio kitchen, and I was like, what's going on? (laughs) And I, I walked in, and there were baby Yoda cocktails. Yeah. (laughs) I literally didn't know what the hell was going on, and I was so happy. There were these little martini glasses that were surrounded by burlap. We'll include a picture, of course. Yep. And they had were adorned with some lime wedges, some blackberries for eyes, (laughs) (laughs) and of course a green, a green body, a green head that little Yoda had. And they were delicious and they included chartreuse. Which is what Emily's going to talk about. So incredible. The apparently the only liqueur that is naturally green. Yeah, I would say nowadays that's probably true. But I would say nowadays in the world of artisanal spirits where we can't really keep up. Yeah. There are probably some yeah. Joe Schmo or Jane Schmo or they Schmo yeah. in South Africa making some herbaceous weirdness, awesomeness yeah. that's green. That's green. But sure. For all intents and purposes, what can be found in every market in the world. Yes. Yes, I think you're right. A green liqueur named Chartreuse. What are you going to talk about today? I'm going to talk about a an era that I love. Those of you who have listened to this podcast very often, thank you so much for your support. You know that I love the Romantic era, and you know that I love the Romantic era in France mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. But on the show, we do highlight WC, we talk about Faure, we talk about Ravel, we talk about others too, some B-sides, but I'm going to go B-side of B-sides, <laughs> just some people that I really like that I don't listen to often and that I was super excited to learn more about. I'm excited to hear. So let's hear some music. All right, let's do it. I wanted to shine light on a producer we've we've mentioned once, I think, on this episode before. A composer, before. though, not a producer. Thank you. <laughs> She's got <laughs> wine. I've got wine on the brain. Oh, my God, that's so terrible. I'm sorry, Ms. Ferranc, you're rolling in your grave. Uh, I wanted to shine light on a composer who was born during like the height of Beethoven. She's got, obviously, she's probably was so grateful and at this time, poor her, right? You have to like grow up in that age. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about Louise Ferranc. 
Before she was known as Louise Ferrand, she was known as Louise Dumont. She was born in 1804 to, and passed away in 1875. And to give you an idea, Beethoven passed away in 1827. So she was literally born and growing up listening to music when Beethoven was at one of his most, you know, popular eras in his life. And she studied music, started studying music at the age of six. At 15, she was taking private lessons for composition because she couldn't be let into the Paris Conservatory, otherwise mm. known as the Paris Conservatoire, which is mm -hmm. sort of like saying the Louvre for music composition. The world over, everybody knew this is one of the best places to go study music and to teach. Um, and so let's just listen to one of her first... She was principally known for her piano music, although we'll talk a little bit more of her about her career. But let's just listen to her etude, which is it's her study of 30 different piano. Well, I mean, what do you call them? I mean, etudes are just short little studies for piano. They're just little compositions, exactly. usually for okay. some kind of pedagog pedagogy reason. Okay, but, so yeah. that's exactly what I meant to say. Thank you. Yes. Uh, it was composed in 1838, and this is her Opus 26. So imagine now, 1838, and born in 1804, and this is her Opus 26. So she's already written 26 plus, you know, Opus numbers, not to mention everything she's scribbled around as a young lass. like running up and down the scale but in a way that's like very romantic and I don't really think it's too emo I mean it's a little emo let's no, be I honest think it's but it's just so beautiful I think it's beautiful yeah I love it I like how there's stretches of the hands playing in unison octa in octaves uh, but then the left hand will go off in its own direction that's really nice yeah and this is before she became a professor of piano at the Paris Conservatory, but I'll talk about that in a second. It, this Let's use this complexity of a female composer who's dope to talk about the complexity of chartreuse. Let's oh, go man. there. Chartreuse is an amazing thing, and it, it really did start with my housemate. Just We knew that you had recently become a fan of The Mandalorian, and we've been a fan for a while now. And so watching you kind of fall in love with that show has been a really fun experience. And um, we communicate the three of us uh, with baby Yoda images. Yeah, That's really just, just like how we, we say, hey, yeah. good morning. Hey, how are you doing today? Yeah, we just send just a baby Yoda. It's great. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so he came across an image of a cocktail that looks like Baby Yoda. <laughs> and then we just knew we had to make it for you because you're just like the queen of all things knowing about alcohol. And we just knew it would be super fun. And so I got a bottle of chartreuse. Not cheap, it turns out. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> and after... I got the chartreuse is when I looked into it and discovered it has this really beautiful story to it. I mean, it's really an important part of history in the world of liquor 
literally in the world. And so it's been really fun to, to learn about it. And in France, that word chartreuse means three different things. It means the mountains, they're chartreuse mountains in the uh, southeastern part of France. It also refers to the monk, the monastery where uh, chartreuse is made by monks. And it refers to the drink itself. So chartreuse is, it's an important part of French history. And I love that we both picked something French too, is super fun to talk about. Um, but anyway, as we alluded to in the beginning, it's green. And chartreuse is made from 130 different herbs and botanicals that are blended in a very specific way that only two monks know how to make it. And they don't, they won't allow them to travel together as a result because um, so they, and obviously these monks aren't like globe trotting, right? <laughs> They're monking around their monastery, but if they do ever go anywhere, they take separate cars so that were anything to happen to them, they wouldn't lose the recipe for all time, which is super cool. So we'll talk a, a little bit more about that, but let's taste it because apparently it's much better chilled. And so what we're going to do is we're going to taste it at room temperature and then a little bit later in the show, we'll go get it chilled and see what we think. Yeah. One thing also that it alludes to, of course, is when we're looking at our room temperature chartreuse right now, it, it does make mention of a color. Oh, definitely. That is like when you talk about chartreuse paint, mm -hmm. meaning, you know, there are people that paint a room chartreuse color or chart, that's a cool sweater that you have. It's so chartreuse. There's like no color that is chartreuse other than chartreuse. Yeah. Like, it's not like olive green. I mean, mm -mm. it kind of wants to be Castle Voltrano, but it's <laughs> not. Um, the, the type of olive, it's got this, like, really beautiful olive meets neon meets... Neon, yeah. ...kind of uh, a very pure, like, almost just oregano leaf. It's a really interesting color. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to taste a little room temperature action to scores and pours. Scores and pours. <laughs> it's strong. I I like I don't know my strong registers pretty you know I'm I'm used to like hundred and hundred yeah. plus proof spirits if I have to <laughs> I agree it's strong but I I do I don't like I don't terribly mind it at the no. temperature no not at all I think it's delightful it's a very sweet liqueur it has you know it's not as sweet as the other color the yellow chartreuse which we'll talk about in a little bit. And it also has a lot less alcohol now than it used to back in the day, and we'll talk about that too. But I think that alcohol, we'll, we'll obviously we'll taste it cold in a second, but just knowing how alcohol and spirits work, usually room temperature, they do show more alcohol than mm. if they're chilled, but it depends on their herbaceous and their sweet content too. So yeah, I notice more alcohol than herbs, a yeah. little bite, yep. little sweetness, but the herb content, you're going to talk about that, aren't you, later? I just know there's 130 of them. There's yeah, there's so many, and if you name them, they're probably in them. There are a lot of like mountain herbs, mm -hmm. flowers, flowers, yeah. barks, things yeah. like that. But what's cool? Well, I'll let you talk about that. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Ms. Ferenc. Yeah, let's hear more music from her. In 1842, so born in 1804, she became a professor of piano at the Paris Conservatory, which she maintained at the helm there for over three decades or so. And in the meantime, she married, Louise Dumont married Aristide Franck, who he was a flutist, 
And he was known for, you know, he composed a little bit, he traveled a lot and performed. And But what's awesome is he really supported her in her composing, in her, you know, traveling to perform. So when he decided to sort of drop off of performing and have like a he wanted to start like some music publishing business or something. You know, she supported him. He supported her. It was a really awesome marriage of sorts that when we read about a lot of female composers, you know, in and around that time period, they weren't always supported like she was. So that yeah. was super awesome. So at this point, she's teaching, she's composing. Her works are being performed all over Europe. Vocal works do exist, but that's not what she's most known for. But she does compose actually before the one that we just listened to the opus 26 in 1838 she composes air russe varie which is like this amazing work her opus 17 which berlioz loved her nice but robert schumann loved her and noticed her like noticed how complete how complex of a composer she was. And he was, I, I guess why I'm saying that is because Robert Schumann seemed like at the time a hard one to please. You know, he was like very into the rules and he wasn't into a lot of like in vogue stuff that was happening. He he liked formality. And so the romantic era was maybe not Schumann's favorite in terms of what everybody was doing. And when he listened to her Air Rousse Ferrier, the Opus 17, he was like, he said something along the lines of, it's great, she's an amazing composer. And it even has an air of romanticism. Like he approved <laughs> of it somehow, yeah. of how she incorporated what was happening for the time with one of her favorite artists. Obviously she was very, you know, Beethoven influenced her, all the greats Im influenced her. So yeah, let's listen to a little bit of Sweet. Opus 17. So we'll listen to just like a first maybe 20 seconds, but then we'll fast forward to like three minutes and it gets very romantic in a way that you're like, oh, Schumann might not be liking this. <laughs> I just love that I can imagine this on a harpsichord. Like, there's a lot of, like, how she's, like, this chromaticism that reminds me of something maybe Baroque mm. or maybe classical, but then it's done in this very flowing style that's romantic. So do you mind, now that we've gone a few seconds, to kind of fast forward, Emily's always at the helm, fast forward to maybe the third three-minute mark. <laughs> That's just emo. Imagine that on the harpsichord all day. But just like, I don't know, I loved it. And I thought it was really interesting to think of Schumann listening to this piano work. Yeah. I don't know, what do you have to say about it? Because you're the expert in this field. Like, I think it's beautiful. 
and captures that time in keyboard, solo keyboard music. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's very virtuosic and, you know, demonstrating a command of counterpoint, like just, yeah, it's really beautiful. Why counterpoint? Um, because there are a lot of places where she's only, not that this is what counterpoint is, but I mean, it is and it isn't. Uh, she's pitting like two voices against each other, mm-hmm. just two single voices as opposed to this thicker, fuller texture, yeah. you know, which is um, which is really cool, very polyphonic, and which is very reminiscent of the Baroque era, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I just, I think it's super, super beautiful. Yeah. I was going to say delicious. <laughs> my yeah. MO. Speaking of delicious. Yeah. Let's chartreuse. Let's chartreuse some more. So these monks, the... Um, Carthusian monks in France in 1605 were gifted this recipe for chartreuse, but they didn't know how to make it. It just listed all these ingredients and it didn't really say what to do with it. It just was like, here's a recipe for the elixir of life. And it was intended for medicine, but they just kind of sat on it for like 100 years (laughs) before they really started studying it and trying to figure out how to make it. And so it was like the early 1700s that they started to study to to figure out the right balance and how to make this elixir of life or elixir of long life, liquor, liqueur of health is another name for it. Um, so early 1700s, they start studying it, figuring out what to do. It's not until 1737 that they actually find what they think is the right formula. And even then, they didn't start making it until 1764. So that's when they started making uh, the first rendition of chartreuse, which is, as we mentioned, 130 plants, herbs, botanicals. There's wine alcohol in it. And the very first was 69% alcohol, 138 proof. So that's pretty strong. Frank was loving that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And people liked it so much that they started, instead of using it for its intent, which was medicinal purposes as an actual like medicinal elixir, they started actually drinking it. And so then the monks were like, "Mm, maybe we should make a little bit lower alcohol version that's intended for consumption in a different way than for medicinal purposes. And, and a, a quick a quick little caveat to that, and I think just to specify, when people were making things for medicinal purposes, a lot of times they put it in an alcohol form because they knew that that was a, sometimes a more compact way to get all these botanicals into one person's belly. Mm-hmm. But in another way, people like to drink. You know, it's always, yep. it's time immemorial. So it's an easier way to say, hey, take these 130 herbs for whatever is your ailment. Mm -hmm. So they would distill it and shove it in some sort of alcoholic version, which is how gin was invented, so that people would drink these things. They'd get their content of whatever they needed. Mm -hmm. So that's when she says medicinal purposes, that's that's why it's alcohol (laughs) and medicine. Yeah. So in 1840, around the time Frank is doing her thing, is when green chartreuse was actually born. It was 1840. And I mentioned it's got slightly less alcohol, so it's 55% as opposed to the original, which was 69%. So 
So 55%, 120-proof is the green chartreuse. That same year, they also produced yellow chartreuse. And yellow chartreuse is same botanicals, all 130. It's got honey in it. The mixture is different. The maceration time on whatever is different. So it comes out yellow instead of green, and it's also lower alcohol. The yellow chartreuse is only 40% only. <laughs> it's 40% 80 proof, right? And much sweeter than, than the green chartreuse even. Can we try it cold? Yeah, let's try it cold. So I love asking you for alcohol. It's pretty fun. Usually it's the opposite. Yeah. Like, so, Fill me up, Jill. So like when Paul Beach and I decided to make this cocktail for you, and, and I was like, well, I got to go buy some chartreuse. Not realizing it's <laughs> it's not cheap. <laughs> I mean, there are 130 herbs. I know. They need to pay for the monks. Yeah. I mean, this stuff you know sits around for years in oak before they bottle it. So, I mean, it's a big deal. It's like really handcrafted in a very special way. And we'll talk more about that too. But um, we tasted it warm and we were both like, kind of. <laughs> and then the more I read about it, the more literally everyone is like, it's a little, you might want to try it cold. You know, it's usually served cold. Try it cold. Drink it cold. Don't have it at room temp. So we're going to try it cold. Here we go. I'm actually going to taste it room temperature first, personally. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. And room temperature, you, room temperature, you really do get a sense for the botanicals for sure. Yeah, but I think tasting the cold version. Yeah. I do prefer it. I don't want it frozen, but I like it chilled. I, I get mm. why they say that because you get way more alcohol. Yeah. The alcohol burn. You get some, you know, the medicinal herbaceous quality, but I like chilled. You get a more of like this, I just had Georgian oregano tea and it reminds <laughs> me of that. And like these beautiful like spring white daisies, you get all these like really cool aromatics that you when it's warm, you just absorb more of the sugar, more of the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So I, I get what they mean. Yeah. It's literally like if the Alps were a liquor. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's unreal how... <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Not at all. Should we music more? Yeah. Because I could just keep going. But okay. let's music. Well, yeah. I mean, I hope you do. Before I get off of Ferenc and go on to someone else... What I love about listening to this music is just knowing that this woman, you know, I think people have heard of her, obviously, in the classical music world, but I think a lot of people that they only know Mozart and Beethoven and Ravel, they may have heard her name, but don't really know. I mean, she, by the age of 30, she had written three symphonies, and at a time when the French were a lot more interested in like opera, you know, stage music, operas, ballets, things like that. And although I do want to listen to her symphonies, I think I, I have a lot of other people I want to talk about. Well, I, I don't want to say a lot. I have two more, but it could possibly be like a four-hour episode if I get going. <laughs> so well, let's just stick through these symphonies she was writing, by the way, in the 1840s. I wanted to, one of my favorite compositions that she wrote was her Sextet in C minor. It's her Opus 40, written in 1852. And it was written for French horn, piano, of course, bassoon, clarinet, oboe, flute. It's 
Her Opus 40, there are three movements. Let's just listen to the, the, the first movement straight away. It's absolutely gorgeous. Let's jut over to the second movement to just listen how that is. So we go from an allegro to an andante sostenuto. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's go from one to two. So just a slower overall tempo and the texture's more fluid. And of course, the piano that she loves so much. Now do you mind going on to the third movement quickly? And we'll listen to the last Allegro Vivace. Yeah, just someone that I really enjoyed. You know, she captured my attention when I was listening to dozens and dozens of composers over the past week uh, studying for this episode, and I really just... Who couldn't talk about Louise Frank? Me. <laughs> so. I think it's lovely. It's great. Let's talk about the chartreuse. Oh, we're back to chartreuse already. I mean, why not? Why not? One of the cool things, as I mentioned, only two monks know the recipe. And so when they send everything to be distilled, they put it in numbered bags. So the, the monks mix bags full of the herbs and it arrives and the people who distill it are just like, well, one goes in with two, goes in with three, goes or whatever. That's how they do it. So even the distillers have no idea what actually is happening. Uh, I mean, so maybe. there are a lot of people that make it, but the people that actually yeah. weigh or separate the herbs or say this much of this much, mm -hmm. the distillers don't know the weight of what is what. Right. They have no idea the proportions of what's going on. I think people have come pretty close. I mean, and you, I think, know more about this than I do. I didn't really look into what the 130 are. Um I I didn't. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, some people have concocted like chartreuse lookalikes in the yep. states here. Some some really awesome distillers, and it they've been really good. But they sometimes they're almost too good. Like it's too much of a good thing, and mm. it's not the original. You know, which right. I can see why 
people, and then they're also probably sixty dollars instead of forty or whatever. You know, right. like they're yeah. you're spending way more for this mm-hmm. like small little craft outfit out of Brooklyn to do so. So yeah, I mean, in the monks, the Carthu- so these monks, by the way, take vows of silence, so they're they don't talk almost ever. There's about twenty nine monks that live at the Chartreuse Monastery. And apparently they only talk twice a week. And one day a week they go on walks in pairs and switch partners every 20 to 30 minutes. So they're still, even on the days that they talk, it's still kind of regulated and determined how long and with whom they're talking. Hmm. And they eat one meal a day, once a week. They all eat together just once a week, but in silence. I think there's probably someone reading scripture or some kind of uh, something uh, during that together meal. But it's a very simple life. Uh, their beds don't have mattresses kind of thing. I mean, it's a very solitary life devoted to the Lord, really, is is what these monks do. And it just happens that they also make this really dope liqueur. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope they're drinking a little bit on like, you know, the Lord's Day Sunday on Christmas, like whatever they're yeah. doing, just, just to like have a little sip of something to give them some warmth yeah, and, and I the mean, spirit in the belly. I guess when the chartreuse is in the cellar, and, and again, from what I understand, you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, most liqueurs aren't aged and aren't really even age-worthy. But this one is for sure aged it in is, yeah. oak for years in what is apparently the quote-unquote longest cellar in the world. So... That's kind of cool. I've heard that. I yeah. don't. I don't know who if it's knows? true. But yeah, yeah, who knows? But that's what they marketed it as the longest cellar in the world, and it's stored in these giant oak barrels. And the monks go through and taste to determine when it's ready for bottling. So, and then there are monks, those monks those don't monks. care if they have the hard <laughs> mattress or not. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty. Amazing. Or I should say, lack of mattress or not. Yeah. Let's taste your seven more barrels, brother. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That would suck. So amazing. So amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay, well, do you want to talk about something Frenchy? Yeah, please. I mean. That is not. That isn't green? That isn't green and that <laughs> doesn't have to do with spirits yeah. and herbs. People that have listened to this podcast, they know that I love Spanish guitar. Yes. I wanted to talk about a composer and a guitar player, Napoleon Cost who was born in 1808 and passed away in 1883. So a very similar time frame to uh, Ms. Ferranc by a few years. And he was born in present-day Dubes, D-O-U-B-S, which is very close to, it's like east of Bonn in, you know, so southern Burgundy and just west of the Swiss border to kind of orient you. And he studied under the Spanish maestro, uh, Fernando Shor, who he was born in the 1770s. So, you know, obviously his, his senior by, by quite a bit. And I just, I, what I loved about it is, you know, I love flamenco guitar. I love Spanish guitar, but it always ends up, even though it's lively there, and there's so much life and energy, it does end up having these scales that are like very of a, of a minor ilk, you mm-hmm. know, it feels somewhat depressive, even though it may or may not be meant to be that way. Mm-hmm. 
And even when we digress, when we go back to Gaspar Sanz, which is, you know, you know, obviously well before Napoleon Coast time, it's like there's still this element of like depressive cold. I'm composing this in a place that doesn't have heat and it's, you know, just whatever. <laughs> so the first composition that I want to present is La Montagnard in A major. It's his opus 34, and it's basically his pastoral fun times, as I like <laughs> to call it. But he's incorporating both oboe and guitar. And so what's cool about this is we talked about Spanish guitar a while back. And there was this guy, I won't tell you what I think about him, but he was like, the guitar should not be part of the classical music repertoire. Okay, well, here's why it should. Why should that not be part of the repertoire? Yes, the know. guitar needs to, the oboe needs to make concessions for the guitar and vice versa. The yeah. guitarist needs to kind of step up a little bit. But let's face it, Christian Muslims, we're all living in a world where everybody needs to tolerate. Like why why is this not so beautiful? Know. Like it's I know. so beautiful. No, this is amazing. One other just little snippet. I, I apologize that he's gonna get a little bit less sunshine than Farank, but his studio brillant, so he did this study of a lot of different techniques for the guitar, I guess. And so this is, I just think it's gorgeous. Just the technique involved, I think, is very beautiful. One thing that we will include is Napoleon Kost was very known for his use of the heptachord. And the heptachord is, so it's a seven string guitar. We will include this link to Alex Timmerman, who's playing a heptachord. And just to show how different it is from, a, it's obviously a guitar, but it has two extra strings on the top. And so specifically, when you get to like the first minute, minute 30, you really see him go down and use those deep, those two deeper strings. So if you check out Alex Timmerman's Hepticord version of Opus 38, you really get this, you know, at a right, right around one minute, 20 seconds, he like goes down and uses that. It's not even on a fret. Yeah. And he just gets that boom, that really bass, yeah. like that timbre that you couldn't get with a regular five string. It's so pleasant, and it kind of sounds like you can definitely tell that Spanish influence, like the staccato, like the... But there's the harmonic is just... We would think of it now as Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> but they were using it back in the 1800s, and obviously this has come from a, a very 
different place chromatically from like Spanish flamenco guitar. Um, I, I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting when I listened to it that you can tell that influence of like the picking of of like Spanish staccato. Like that right there, 47, 45 seconds is very yeah. like, but then the harmonics I think are Beautiful. awesome. Yeah, I love it. Really Napoleon nice. Cost. Cost. Or Cost de. Cost de. What else am I learning about chartreuse today? I'm very excited. Speaking of Spain, you're going to learn about when chartreuse was made in Spain. <laughs> it's true, it was. This liqueur is just full of surprises, I'll tell you what. So the monks got kicked out of France in 1903. Well, it happened actually a few different times. In 1793, they got expelled and production stopped. They returned in 1816. Because of the French Revolution, right? Like yeah. the you know, Napoleon yes. came, yes. decided church and state, church no more kind of thing. They yep. lost a lot of benefits, lots of rights. But they came back. They did come back in 1816. But then in 1903, they got kicked out again. And that's when they ended up in Spain, in Catalonia, Tarragona. Tarragona. Tarra, Tarragona. Catalonia. Catalonia. Well, it says Catalonia. Yeah, Catalonia. Well, if you're in Spain, that's how you say it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's where they ended up. And they started making chartreuse there, but they didn't call it that. The First of all, the French government sold off the trademark because they're a bunch of dicks. So they <laughs> sold off the of trademark to chartreuse to a bunch of other distillers who tried to make it in France. And they didn't, obviously, they didn't know the recipe or really understand how to make it. And so... They all went bankrupt it was in their 19- version of the It was their version of the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got the they got the recipe because that's what they need. Yeah, but they but it's not written down, so they didn't have it. They didn't know how to make it. Mm-hmm. So that company went bankrupt in 1929. And in 1929, a bunch of people who were like on the side of the monks bought the rights back to Chartreuse and gave it to the monks. And so then that's why Chartreuse is Chartreuse again. Okay. Which is kind of kind of badass. But yeah, for like a while there, they made it in Spain, but they didn't call it Chartreuse. They called it something Tara, Tarragona. I can't remember exactly what, but. What's so funny is I see the look in Emily's eyes as she's like across the booth of like, wow, I can't believe that a spirit can have this much history. And like these, these people getting kicked out and bought <laughs> trademarks and all this drama. And I'm like, welcome, <laughs> welcome. This is why alcohol is interesting. Yes, we can get drunk from it, and that's some fun sometimes. But, like, you you learn so much about history yeah. and, like, motives and availability of just, like, herbs and all that stuff when you it's amazing. dig into because everybody drinks. Everybody <laughs> drinks, even the monks. Yeah, it's amazing. Yep. If you were to guess how much money they make off a of chartreuse each year, what would you— it's actually quite low. I mean, I think they Probably. make they make a lot of money, but mm-hmm. they end up either donating it, mm-hmm. putting it back into the monastery. Yep. So the actual money that they make is, I guess, I don't know a quantity, but I would say it's way lower than we would think. Yeah, I mean, it's 15 million euros a year, which you would think it would be more, honestly. But but yeah, 15, 15 mil. Well, that's a, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, when I think of like the Orval, Monastery mm. that makes, you know, or, beer. I shouldn't say the Orval Monastery. Yeah. The, the brewery that brews Orval in southern Belgium, they are 
you know, their beers sell for $6 a bo- small bottle. Yeah. So they're obviously making a lot of money on that mm-hmm. per annum. But the thing is, is they, any profits that they get, they have to use what they need to subsist and then they have to donate the rest. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Carthusian monks of Chartreuse are the same way where yes. they, yes, do they profit 15 million? Probably, but do they use what they need? Right. I bet if you, we were all, field trip, Scores and Ports field trip, if we go to Eastern France to go visit the monastery, could we go buy a tasting flight of chartreuse and walk through the grounds? Yes. And that's going to cost us money too. And <laughs> yes. all that is going to go to mm-hmm. donation. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Me and, telling- you know, and to some, probably some rich bishop, let's be honest. I mean, yeah, me talking about how much they make is not at all to imply that they are raking in because literally yeah. they don't use mattresses. So they have very little interest in it. They did recently build a brand new facility a couple of years ago, which is kind of nice. Um, so they definitely put money back into the production of the chartreuse and it's not like they're rolling around their monastery in Rolls Royces or anything like that. That's yeah, just not how but they I mean, operate. They know that people are going to be rolling into yeah. the chartreuse monastery with some Rolls Royces. So yeah. they want to like mm-hmm. be able to have people feel invited. Yeah. But I, I do understand what you mean. And I think, let's be honest, there are probably some bishops oh, out there yeah. that are I mean, and the people the people out there representing it for them are probably doing oh, okay. Oh, God, and, it's you know, sad. I mean, it is the what people, it is. You're it's, right about that, 100%. Yeah, yeah. It, it is what what it is. But let's, let's not talk about that. Yeah, no. Let's talk about Henriette Regnier. Speaking of which, she would have gone and bowed down at those feet and probably sipped some chartreuse. Yeah. This woman was a heavy believer in Catholicism. Okay. Which is cool. You know, she had yeah. some faith. She was born in 1875, died in 1956. So a, b- a bit later, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 50 yeah. plus years later than a couple other people we were talking about. And to me, this is the era that I think when I think of you and what you love, that's what I think of. Yeah. I mean, the, other, the, two were, the other two were earlier. Yeah, a little early. And you can you. tell that they have a lot of that pull of what was happening oh, yeah. with Beethoven. Mm-hmm. This woman was a student of the Paris Conservatoire when she was 10. Cute. She was, they recognized right away that this woman was a prodigy. She developed techniques that are still studied for the harp. Cool. And through her teens, she just won awards all over the flippin' place. She won the Premier Prix. She w- I got sick of writing them all down, so I'm not even going to talk about <laughs> them, uh, which is awesome. But let's listen to her harp concerto in C minor. There are four movements. It was written in 1901. And we'll listen to just the third and fourth, I think, are the most profound. It's, it's fantastic in its entirety, but we're just going to focus on the third and the fourth movement, the scherzo and the finale. Yeah, just imagine playing that on the harp. this so it's not yeah. like she just wrote the heart part oh, or yeah. played the heart yeah. part you know 
something. Yeah, right? Now, if you wouldn't mind, when we start the final, which is Allegro con Fuoco, you know, we got a bit of, we mm -hmm. got a bit of gumption here. Let's just fast, let's listen to the first like 15 seconds or so. And if you wouldn't mind just going to minute 145, give or take. Yes. Beautiful. Let's just compose that. It's beautiful. Just they're like all swimming as what's like a synchronized swimming team. They're just like all like. And yes, the harp is at the four because that's what she was known for. Concerto, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Really lovely. Yeah, beautiful. I, lo I love it so much. And we'll talk about one more, but do you have any final thoughts on Chartreuse before we depart? I think um, just that it was an absolute pleasure to learn about it and taste it and learn how one of the common themes I found at like videos I watched about it or bartenders talking about it online or articles about it. It's like once you start making cocktails with it, you realize you can't live without it. It just, mm -hmm. it's a, it's an absolute necessity to have that in your bar. And one of the things too, that I really liked about it is that sometimes a cocktail will only call for like two or three drops of it mm -hmm. because it really is potent and special. And anyway, it comes in different sizes. There are all kinds of different types. I mean, not really all kinds, but there's the green chartreuse, there's yellow chartreuse. There's also a special, um, Vintage, I guess maybe it's a blend, but it's like older and it's aged longer. Vo. VP is that what it's called? Yeah. Well, they it's like vo. It's like old and aged. Yeah. 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 So there are different ones. There's a special blend that you can only get at the monastery that you can taste and buy there, which would be really fun to check out sometime. And it's just a very special elixir, elixir of long life. Oh man, I love it so much. I like I taste it and I don't drink chartreuse often. I don't drink cocktails often. They're a little strong for me, even though I love them. But it was really fun to not only taste the cocktail that you and Paul concocted, but then, you know, Paul was asking like, well, when would I drink this? Because like, I, I like it, like it's super fun, but I don't want to like drink it every week or like now we have this bottle of, in, in the studio <laughs> fridge, we got this like <laughs> bottle of chartreuse. We're going to do this. And I was like, man, if you put like an eighth of an ounce in a can of soda water, mm. there's no, there's, I mean, yes, there's alcohol, but it's, you're not drinking it to get drunk then. You mm -hmm. just add this, like, you know, it's like adding grenadine to seven yeah. up, you know, you're just adding like flavor that you can't get anywhere else. It's super unique. So I agree with you when you said the bar can't live without it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Super fun. All one, right. One, one more from you. So what, what I wanted to mention about Henriette Renier was that, 
we talked about Farank and that Berlioz loved her, Schumann loved her, with uh, Renier, Debussy loved her, Ravel was like, who is this? She's amazing. Mm-hmm. What's an interesting part was just how, what was happening in the religious versus the, you know, church versus state faction at the time. She was supposed to receive a Legion d'Honneur, which is like, you know, the Purple Heart in, in the United States, but for what you're contributing to society, to the arts, to life. And she was the highest military honor in France. She was supposed to receive that and didn't hmm. because she was wholeheartedly like super Catholic. She didn't get a uh, post to teach at the conservatory. She was going to teach instrumentation, but because they found out what a staunch Catholic she was, they didn't allow her to get her post, which <laughs> is, you know, I, I don't disagree or agree with that. It's just it's an interesting state of the world at the time. She did gravely oppose the, the Nazis and she went and like ripped down a bunch of paraphernalia and all of that. So she was like, I don't care if this influences my career or my student's career. Like I oppose this. So that's cool that she was doing that. You know, she was mm-hmm. speaking out. Um, but I think when you look at her stature online, you know, she wasn't like a big woman. She was like very <laughs> kind of gaunt and just heart player and just like <laughs> had her beliefs. And I think that's, she kind of just lived in the shadows. Like we don't really know much about this woman. Mm. So let's finish up by listening to, I think very appropriately, this was written in 1898. It's called Contemplation. I think it's a nice way to say farewell to Scores and Pours today. To Scores and Pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially. Thank you so much, patrons, at patreon.com slash scores and pours. There you can also find a link to our merch, which includes some awesome hoodies for this winter time of year here in the upper Midwest and some great t-shirts for those of you in warmer climates. <laughs> we are on Instagram at Scores and Pours. That's a really great way to get in touch with us. You can send us a DM there with show ideas and other comments. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. Joe. June, little kitty.